Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. My name is Anna Domnay, and I'm the host of this channel. Today, I will be talking to Narges Bajogli about her book, Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic, that was published at um, Stanford University Press just recently. Narges is an assistant professor at Middle East Studies at the School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University, and I'm very excited to be able to talk to her today. So, Narges, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Um, before we get into the book itself, um, I would like to ask if you could tell me and the audience something about yourself. What is your professional background and how did you become interested in the topic of um, regime media production in Iran? Sure. So um, I am an anthropologist by training um, and I first started um, I mean, even before I actually went into anthropology, I was, um, my family background is Iranian, um, although I grew up in the United States. And um, I had always been very interested in what had happened in Iran after the revolution, both for family reasons and then also just um, because growing up in the U.S., Iran always occupied sort of enemy number one in the popular culture and news culture of the country. And um my visits to Iran over the summers revealed a very different reality to me than what I was seeing and, and hearing here as a child growing up. And so I was really interested in sort of understanding this much more in depth. While I was doing um, my master's degree, I came across this one uh, man who had been one of the founders of the Ansar Hezbollah paramilitary organization in Iran. And he ended up making a, a popular film that sort of broke all box office records in Iran. And it was a film about the war at a time when no one was going to watch films about the Iran-Iraq war anymore. This was in 2007. And it became very um, interesting for me about why this man who up until that point had sort of occupied this space that people didn't like him. You know, he was, uh, they, they very much were against him because he was in charge of uh, suppressing the student movement in Iran in 1999. Um, and the, um, as I was following him from afar, he was writing in his blog that he wanted to uh, train younger paramilitary uh, Bastich forces in Iran and how to make films like him so that they w could bring younger people back to the side of the revolution. And so it became really interesting for me to just try to understand this. And that's what led me to the research of the book. But I think overall, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this ethnographically rather than, you know, before going into anthropology, I was actually in political science, but I was very frustrated about how, um, especially Iranian state power had been analyzed and studied up until that point, because we were, we still didn't fully understand it after, all of these studies that were sort of looking at the Islamic Republic in these very 2D ways. And so I wanted to take an ethnographic approach and, and understand who the people are who support this regime from inside and, and what their complex sort of backgrounds are. Mm -hmm. um, you did an incredible amount of 10 years of research. Um, how did you get access to the spaces you needed to get into for your research? Yeah. So, um, you know, coming again from this background in which I was Iranian-American, in which we know that the the Iranian state uh, sees as potential spies, and there have been many cases in which they've taken dual nationals. So that was already, a, you know, sort of a tick against me. And then above that, um, coming from what they consider a counter-revolutionary background in which I had my father was involved in, in the revolution, but on the leftist side that eventually got, um, you know, silenced and squashed after the revolution, um, I knew that it wouldn't be easy. And I also didn't have any sort of family uh, in any of these groups. Uh, th this was a totally foreign world to me. Um, so it took a lot of uh, work to get access into this group. Um, 
especially I was doing most of my research. I started my research really in the aftermath of the 2009 Green Movement in Iran. And so uh, it was a highly securitized time to be doing this sort of work. What helped me is that prior to starting the research for this book, I had been working on issues of chemical warfare in Iran. And I'd been working with um, veterans who were exposed to chemical warfare for about four years prior to that, to starting this book research. And it was only because I had been doing this work for so long and I had shown the men who had been exposed to chemical warfare that I could be empathetic to them as human beings, even if I didn't agree with their political views or social views, um, that once I mentioned to them that I wanted to do the research on the media makers and in, in the Revolutionary Guard and Basij paramilitary forces, they then made the introductions to their friends in that world. And it was only through these personal introductions in which they could vouch for me and say that they had, um, you know, they had worked with me and that they had trusted me that I was then able to sort of get my foot in the door in the, in the regime media world and then had to, for another two years, constantly show up and sort of build relationships there until I was granted access. Um, you just mentioned the Revolutionary Guard. Um, and I would like to talk about terminology a little because I'm, I assume that many listeners might not be familiar with the structure of the Iranian regime. So um, maybe you could tell us a little about how the political field is organized, what are important institutions, groups, and individuals, maybe? Yeah. So um, basically, my overall question for this research was, um, how does a, a revolutionary movement that has become successful transmit its uh, ideology from one revolution from one generation to the next so what happens when a revolutionary movement sort of embeds itself into a state becomes the status quo and then is charged with making sure that future generations don't rise up against it in another movement um, so in in doing that I became really interested in what were the media makers of the Islamic Republic doing in trying to communicate um, to younger generations about what the revolution stood for and why they should not go against it ultimately. Um, now, in that endeavor, one of the one of the biggest organizations that pours a lot of money into regime media production in the country is the Revolutionary Guard. Now, the Revolutionary Guard is an organization a military organization that began after the 1979 revolution. So in January of 1979, the Shah flees Iran. In February of 1979, Ayatollah Khomeini returns back to Iran from exile. Uh, he, he had been stationed in France up until that point. He comes back to Iran um, and slowly over a period of a few months sort of takes over state power, uh, him and, and the folks around him. In that endeavor, he uh, was afraid that the formal military or what in Persian it's called the Artish, that the formal military was could still be loyal to the Shah and could potentially pose a coup against him. And so he created the Revolutionary Guard as a force that would sort of protect the revolution from within, from any sort of coup or uprisings. And so actually the first year and a half after the success of the revolution, the Revolutionary Guard was deployed to the Kurdish and Turkoman regions of the country to um, to uh, suppress the sort of uprisings that had begun there against the central government. Uh, and then once Iraq invaded Iran in September of 1980, so about a year and a half after the revolution, Iraq invades Iran in the southern parts of Iran where the oil fields are um, or the oil refinery is. And uh, the Artish goes to fight against Iraq. However, in the in the aftermath of the revolution, many of the top echelon of the military had either been executed or had been exiled, again, for uh, reasons that, that the new government thought that they would remain loyal to the Shah. So the Artish was in, in, in a bit of shambles at the beginnings of the Iran-Iraq war, and so they needed reinforcement, and the Revolutionary Guard gets sent down there. Over the course of the Iran-Iraq war ends up taking eight years. So over the course of this eight-year war, um, the Revolutionary Guard actually ends up, because it's the favorite military force in the country, ends up getting a lot more um, uh, weaponry as well as uh, budgetary support and logistical support so that by the end of the war, it actually has a parallel structure to the to the formal military. So it has ground forces, it had um, air forces, naval forces, um, and then eventually over time, it sort of grows beyond that as well. Um, so in 
Now, in the post-war period, um, Iran is sort of faced with this reality that it has a, uh, it's gone through eight years of war, and there's also been this revolution. So they need to begin to rebuild the country. And the re- in the effort to rebuild the country, a lot of the contracts that are given uh, go to uh, companies that uh, have some sort of ties to the Revolutionary Guard, either former members who are now retired who are leading these companies or sort of subsidiaries of the Revolutionary Guard. And so as they begin to rebuild the country, the Revolutionary Guard also begins to become independently wealthy as an institution. So over this sort of period of time, it becomes this, up until today, it becomes this very um, large organization in the political structure of the country, which is highly uh, financially independent. Now, when Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini ends up dying one year after the war ends in Iran. So he dies in 1989. And in his will, he puts that the, um, no armed forces should become involved in politics at all in the country. Um, because he thought that that would eventually end up corrupting both the armed forces as well as the political structure of the country. However, because of these uh, post-war reconstruction efforts, the Revolutionary Guard slowly does come to get involved in the political structure of the country. And there are lots of reasons behind that, which I won't get into here because it's just way too detailed and complicated. But all of this to say that this organization uh, sort of looms large in Iranian political life. Now, I studied them as well as the Basij paramilitary organization. And the Basij is important in this in the political milieu of the Islamic Republic because it was sort of a force that became very prominent during the war. Again, um, the Iran-Iraq war um, was basically a proxy war in which uh, the U.S. and Western powers were sort of playing Iraq and Iran off of each other in a war of attrition between the two sides, um, but really overtly giving a lot more uh, financial funding as well as equipment and weapons support and logistical support to the Iraqi side. And so the Iraqis were much better armed than the Iranians. So one of the strategies that the Iranians had in order to sort of fight this war was to inundate the war front with a lot a lot more people because Iran is a much more populous country than Iraq is. And so this is where the Basij becomes important because the Basij becomes the main recruitment tool of, uh, the, of the Islamic Republic to take uh, especially young men down to the war front. So um, in, in, in my research, I was looking at, you know, the Basij played a very important role during the war, but then in the post-war period, they had to demobilize the Basij because, you know, the war is over and they had to figure out what to do with it. And so one of the things that they end up doing is really um, charging the Basij with sort of leading a, a cultural war in the country after the, after the Iran-Iraq war in order to make sure that the that the ideas of the revolution can be embedded in in society. So I was really sort of interested in looking at that uh, aspect of what they were sort of up to now, and more importantly, the generational differences in these organizations between those who had fought in the war and those who sort of come up in the after in the post war period. Um, so that's sort of the the larger political milieu under which the salt takes place. Um. Yeah, uh, concerning the generational difference, that's what I found really interesting. So maybe um, you could elaborate a bit about that. Just um, how did you even um, divide all those people into different generations? Because more than half of Iran's citizens were born after the revolution in 1979. So how did you deal with that? Yeah, so I... Um Okay, so when when I started my research, um, again, as I mentioned earlier, much of this research was done right after the 2009 uprising. So a lot of the conversations that were happening initially behind closed doors among uh, these regime filmmakers who are part of the armed forces was about how to deal with this um, incredible new movement that had sort of sprung up in their faces that was, um, you know, the Green Movement was difficult for, for those who supported the Islamic Republic because it was the first huge mass protest, national mass protest against the regime in which the the slogans went from where is my vote sort of, um, you know, decrying that what they thought was voter fraud in the re-election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad as the president of Iran. Uh, and eventually it turned into down with the dictator and down with the system as a whole. And the slogans of the 2009 movement were almost identical to those 
that um, that were being uh, that had been chanted in 1979, in which a lot of these men who were at the helm of, of military power in Iran had remembered chanting themselves against the Shah when they were teenagers. So it really sort of presented them with this crisis of legitimacy. So as I was in these meetings with all of them, as they were discussing what new products they were going to be, what new media products they were going to be producing in the aftermath of this massive movement, um, I began to really see, I thought that there, that the biggest divide would be between those who hold power in Iran versus those who are sort of in the opposition, whether they be women, uh, young people, uh, different student movements, teachers movements, things like that. And although there was a lot of that, what I actually found much more, uh, the more time I spent in in these uh, circles, was the huge generational divides within the Islamic Republic's armed forces. And so the way that I go about just, des- you know, describing this and, and categorizing it is that so understanding and thinking about generations uh, and generational differences is something that social scientists have obviously been thinking about for a long time. And in the Iranian case, in the in the post-revolutionary case of Iran, uh, the way that I, I began to sort of split it up is that those who fought in the Iran-Iraq war, no matter what generational background they themselves came in, they the, the war sort of was this moment that they all fought in that created a certain kind of understanding about who they are and their place in the world and their place within Iranian society. And so that experience of the war allowed us, and I was using a lot of Carl Mannheim's um, sort of theorization here allowed me to to place them within one generation. Now, as you said, most of Iran's generation today, over seventy five percent, are under the age of forty, so they don't remember the revolution or the war. Um, but within that, um, the way that I split up the armed forces was was the. The first generation being the ones who had fought in the Iran-Iraq war, the second generation being those who were too young to fight in the war, but who came up in the Revolutionary Guard or Bastich paramilitary forces in the 1990s. And they tend to sort of align themselves more with the first generation. And then the third generation are those who, when I was doing my research over the past 10 years, tended to be mostly in their 20s uh, to late 20s, maybe early 30s. And these are the folks who... Um, who really came became involved in the Basij and paramilitary organizations um, as young teenagers and uh, as adults had sort of come of age during Ahmadinejad's presidency. Um, and the and the differences I began to see in them were really differences that I'm just going to go into detail a little bit here just to help us understand this, that in the aftermath after Khomeini passed away in 1989, uh, there was a he he sort of ended up making the current supreme leader Ayatollah Khamenei um, a, a supreme a supreme leader sort of in the very um, at the end of of his life because he had actually first wanted to um, make this other uh, senior cleric the supreme leader but uh, his name is Ayatollah Montazeri but Montazeri um, was really critical of Khomeini in the last few years um, and writing lots of public letters, especially about the decisions to kill political prisoners in the prisons and things like that. So because of that, they sidelined him and eventually put him under house arrest. And Khamenei had been the president uh, during eight years of the war, um, but he did not have a high enough ranking to be an Ayatollah. So like for those who don't know Shia, Shia religious clergy, it, it's kind of like, you know, trying to make an assistant professor a professor overnight without going through all of the tenure track, uh, you know, tenure process to do that and without giving, you know, without that person becoming an associate professor. So for all intents and purposes, it's as if Khamenei did just did not have what it took, you know, he didn't have the, the, um, the, the credentials behind him. And so when he becomes a supreme leader, once Khomeini dies, he's sort of faced with this big, um, uh, he himself has an, a, a problem with, my, he might not be legitimate enough. And so that's why he begins to rely much more on the armed forces in Iran. Now, this becomes all important when we think about the third generation. So in the late 1990s, there's a huge reformist wave that takes over Iranian politics in which young people are voting in very large numbers to begin to reform the system. The reformists who come into power, ultimately Khamenei sees them as a threat to his power. And so he begins to change the 
the curriculum of the Basij forces to to a curriculum that is much more that in, in the end would would sort of uh, train a, an entire cadre of young people uh, in the paramilitary forces that would be loyal to him. And so this third generation of the Basijis that we have today are really a generation that is much more loyal to Khamenei, whereas the the first two generations of the Revolutionary Guard um, tend to be, uh, not always, but tend to be sort of, um, they won't ever say it publicly, but they tend to want uh, things within the system to open up more than the Supreme Leader wants. And so these are some of the generational differences that I began to see. And, and honestly, this is this is stuff that came about through the ethnography. I actually wasn't expecting to see the incredibly large divides that exist within these forces among the different generations. So much so that like the older generation would tell me things that, you know, these younger Basijis are a cancer to our society. I mean, there was a lot and they wouldn't let their own children join these Basij forces. So there's a huge division that began to happen uh, in these forces. And part of that, as I go through in the book, part of it. Uh, uh, goes back to sort of social and cultural class and the ways in which these things have shifted in Iran over the past 40 years. And that's sort of my bigger point to the whole book is that our lens to understanding the Islamic Republic the past 40 years, especially in the West, has always been through this lens of political Islam. And although that helps us understand some things, it actually doesn't allow us to understand most things that are going on in Iran or even within the Islamic Republic. And so the book uh, tries to look at deeper social phenomenon that are sort of beyond the, you know, our, um, our conceptions of Islamic politics. Yes, this brings me to, um, actually, in the course of your book, you have, you bring up many divisions, you just mentioned the division you um, anticipated, um, between those in power and those in opposition, but actually there are many more. Like those, um, you bring up the terms those insiders and outsiders of the regime, and um, then there's in case of the veterans who fought in the war, they have uh, their official version and their real version. They told you sort of behind the scenes. So how does this come into play when we talk about um, generational differences and the, this national constitutive narrative of the war? Um, how, how do they draw on this narrative and um, in, in order to uphold um, or get the younger people back in to uphold the, the regime, basically. Yeah, so, um, you know, the the Iran... So part of the argument I'm making in the book um, is that... <sighs> The, what they are trying to, what the regime media, you know, I was working with media makers. So for, for them, what was paramount and really important were, were stories and how stories were told and, and who, who should be telling the stories of the revolution or the regime and things like that. And part of that also entailed what the foundational stories of the Islamic Republic were. So actually the, the revolution is not a is not the main foundational story of the Islamic Republic, partially because the revolution was way too complex. I mean, it involved too many forces for the regime to to neatly package as an Islamic revolution. It, it tries very hard, but it ultimately it, it ends up being very hard for them. So instead, it's the war, the Iran-Iraq war, which becomes the, the main foundational story of the Islamic Republic, so much so that in stories that are built today, they might be taking place, the films might be taking place as if they're in the war, but much of the the stories and what they're dealing with are issues that Iranian society is facing today. So the war is sort of always used as the backdrop uh, to, to talk about uh, important issues of the day, especially among regime filmmakers. Now, within that, just like any state around the world, the state attempts to, to create a monopoly over war narratives, right? I mean, we have we have this problem any everywhere in which oftentimes veterans that fight in wars end up over time really disagreeing and disliking the ways in which states have sort of monopolized narratives over the war. And the Iranian case is no different in that sense, in which a lot of the veterans feel that those who are at 
at the helm of power have sort of utilized the war uh, for their own political and or financial interests and sort of nothing, you know, and, and the veterans have to deal with the PTSD of the war and they have to deal with all of the, the different um, injuries that they sustained during the war and things like that. Now, in this in this capacity, the Islamic Republic has also, in, in their capacity to try to monopolize the narrative of the war, they send film crews often to veterans' homes at least once a year to film them for like these specials that they put on television about the veterans and things like that. So because of this, the veterans are constantly used to talking to media outlets and, and journalists and even academics about the war. And, and because that because of that, they're used to talking about it in a specific way. So in the official way that the war is supposed to be talked about. So when I first started showing up and talking to veterans, they would also respond to me in this very official way. But I knew from having spent time with uh, especially veterans exposed to chemical warfare that there was much more to the story and that oftentimes they would be much more willing to tell me things beyond the official version if I spent more time with them and if I actually was able to gain their trust. So over time, as I was able to do that, it was really interesting. It, It would always take about two years And then after about two years, they would test me out in different ways to see if they could really trust me with their own personal stories. And then they would, you know, when they would catch me alone or they would invite me to their homes or I would go on a drive with them somewhere, then they would start and say, you know, this is how um, this is what I really think about the war. This is what my experiences were really like. And oftentimes they were completely contradictory to what the official narratives of the war were. And so uh, that was one of the main things that I, I I also wanted to pull out in the book. What was this um, this division uh, that was happening over the ways in which the foundational story of the Islamic Republic was being narrated? And also on top of that, the first generation of Revolutionary Guard members, who also themselves tend to be veterans, um, they, many of them, as I lay out in the book, were talking in the aftermath of the 2000 green, 2009 Green Movement. They would say things like, look, we produced propaganda in the 1980s and 1990s, but we needed to do that because any state in war produces propaganda. But our young people have become tired of that propaganda. So we need to create better stories. And it's not their fault they don't like what we make. It's our fault. So because of this and these sorts of conversations that they would constantly have, a lot of it centered around, okay, what are the stories that we should now be telling? Or how can we retell the stories of the war so they don't come across as propaganda to young people? So a lot of that involved very sort of intimate conversations among themselves and among other veterans about what what of the war should be remembered or not. Um, and so that's part of the discussion that I try to sort of bring out in the book. And which you do very well. <laughs> um, so how does the regime try to reach a younger audience? What's the strategy? So, okay, and just because of what I mentioned, you know, that they, they themselves recognize that young people see anything produced by the state as being propaganda. And so that includes, you know, anything that's put on state television. Um, so what they've tried to do is they try to refashion their media products in multiple ways. So, so I lay out three strategies in the book that I saw them undertaking sort of as a pattern and, and, and saw them develop quite a bit. The first is the strategy of dissimulation in which they try to uh, make products so that people don't understand that they're watching regime media. Now, what do I mean by this? So first of all, every country around the world produces propaganda, right? Every state produces propaganda. Some states are just better at hiding their propaganda than others, meaning that they're they're more savvy at producing products that people don't think is propaganda when they're watching it. In the Islamic Republic, in the first two decades after the revolution, the media makers of the regime were mostly studying and looking at Soviet filmmaking. But obviously, they realized that that wasn't able to garner younger audiences today. And so the conversation among them became that we need to start looking more towards Hollywood because they were they knew and they were studying the ways in which uh, Hollywood studios um, had close relationships. Some of them had close relationships with the U.S. Defense Department. And so um, they began to look at those and they also began to really study American war films a lot more. Um, and so part of what they began to do is to create films that they would then distribute on Burns DVDs or Burned VCDs and distribute them 
two men who sell banned media in Iran, especially banned films uh, that you that you can buy on the streets for like a dollar or something. And so they began to put their movies out like that and people would buy them and think that, wow, this is an underground film made by like an independent underground filmmaker and, and start watching it. So that was one way that they would try to do that. And, and then as the internet sort of developed more throughout my research, I also realized that one of the other things they were doing is creating internet TV channels um, that is really hard for you to figure out if you don't actually see them developing these, that these are from the state. And then they would put up Uh, different kinds of media on these internet TV channels uh, and people would watch them or more importantly, circulate them via social media and that it would get watched in that way. Another, um, and then in in general, they sort of developed all these different distribution techniques that I lay out in the book. Um, They've also been focusing quite a bit on producing music videos and things on social media that they know that young people are much more ready to consume because it's on social media and they don't have to think as much about sort of television and things like that when they're producing. And then the third is refashioning their narratives, especially the ones that they do officially, refashioning them to no longer be about Shiism and political Islam, but to be about nationalism, Iranian national identity and Persian like Persian-ness. Um, and this is uh, for a few reasons. One is sort of understanding that young people and just the general public in general, because they, they wanted to turn away from official uh, the official narratives of how the state had to find things. They sort of uh, sought refuge or thought about, you know, developing a, a national identity that was not about Shiism per se in the way that the Islamic Republic had defined it, but much more about this sort of Persian nationalism. And so people had been developing that in different ways um, you know, um, themselves. And then the regime uh, media producers and meetings that I uh, sat in with them would talk a lot about, we need to meet people where they are and where they are is sort of celebrating this particular kind of Iranian nationalism. And so they began to reformulate much of their material to be much more about Iranian nationalism than to be about uh, political Islam or Shiism. And that's very different. So I, I talk about that quite in depth in the book, but that's very different than the media that they're producing, for example, to be exported to Lebanon and Iraq. That that those media continue to 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 depict um, Shiism and political Islam a particular way, but the media that they produce internally is is very much sort of embedded in notions of Iranian nationalism, and part of that also then t- leads into the wider proxy wars between Saudi Arabia and Iran in the region and sort of the, the, the geopolitics of, of the current moment in which I was doing my research, which was not only in the aftermath of 2009, but then also eventually in the aftermath of the green of the Arab Spring. And then most importantly, the aftermath and the reality of the of Syrian civil war. So and ISIS. So in, in the midst of all of this, in order to um, to um, to deal with a population that had been rising up against them in all of these different forms of protest, one of the ways that they thought to at least keep coherence in this in the country was to um, show themselves as a force and as a government that was there for the Iranian nation and like the dignity of the Persian civilization above and beyond um, the ideology of the Islamic Republic. Um, In the very beginning, you write how the notion of the term regime in Iran is very different from regime as it's seen in the West, um, because the regime is different from the government. And um, from what I have thought about, I thought that when the regime is unquestionable, how can how can isn't the persianness conflicting with that notion of the regime and another example might be that um many media producers said that they wanted change and a better future as soon as they had daughters um but they don't want to change the regime which um set up compulsory hijab and things like that. So isn't that a paradox? How do you think about that when it comes to your analysis? Yeah, it's a great question. Okay, so I'm going to take the question in two parts. First, what you mentioned about the the terminology. So as I lay out in the introduction, part of, you know, I had a really hard time 
think, especially when I began to write this book about how, what, 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 how was I going to refer to what I had studied? Because regime has such negative connotations in Western academia. Um, and uh, But within Iran, they would constantly use Nizam, which I translated as regime. It's the, a more accurate translation is system. But it, you know, in English, it was really it would have been very awkward for me to keep writing system over and over again in the book. And so I sort of had to, to make a decision about how I wanted to come down on this in, in Persian and in general across the Middle East, but definitely in Persian, um, there's a difference made between dolat or government and uh, regime uh, or nezam or system. And so the, the system as a whole is, um, is something that um, within the Iranian uh, Islamic Republic's armed forces and paramilitary forces, which is what I was studying, they all disagreed with one another a lot. And that's part of, that's one of the things I wanted to drive home in this book is that these are not monolithic entities. They really disagree with one another a lot. Yet where they drew the line was that they all saw themselves as defenders of the system, right? Defenders of the regime as a whole. Now, in in relation to that, um, to sort of bring it back to your question, um. Okay, so part of what you're bringing up is that in the book, I talk a a bit about how um, those, especially in the first and second generation, once they have children, it's their children who are really challenging them to think differently about the, the politics that they've supported throughout the past 40 years. And especially when they have daughters, their daughters really challenge them quite a bit. And more importantly, they said to me often, you know, that the, the, the restrictions that they supported at the beginnings of the revolution, especially vis-a-vis women, for them were abstract at the time. And now that they have daughters who are now in their 20s and sort of coming up against some of these restrictions, they now realize how that, how harmful those restrictions have been and are now really trying hard to to like push for some of those restrictions to change. Um, so because of that, they, um, you know, and, and it was often, oftentimes the, those who had children who um, I would, I would see really wanted to talk about changing the system from within. Now, when you ask about your question of then that does that, is that contradictory with um, with the regime and, and sort of with what the regime has been defined as and defined itself as in the past three decades, four decades? The way that they see it is that they think that um, that the system was a product of its time when it was when it first came about, and that it needs to now um, shift its boundaries and open up. And that they think it can still stay intact, um, but yet reform quite a bit so that it, it responds more to the realities of the population today than stick to the realities of the population 40 years ago. So for them, they don't actually see it as contradictory, but they do think it needs to change quite a bit. And they think that certain questions, they they never necessarily directly address compulsory hijab with me, but I could tell in the ways that they interacted with their wives and daughters and then, and in the ways they definitely interacted with me. Cause I didn't really, I, I kept my hijab the way that I wore it other times. I didn't make it um, more conservative or anything. And anytime we would go somewhere and someone would ask me if we were especially going to like somewhere that was under the auspices of the Supreme leader's office. And they would ask me to make my hijab more conservative. They would come up to me themselves and say, don't do it and don't listen. And they would tell those guys, leave her alone and sort of walk on in. Um, So within those, you know, formations of the, uh, of, of these folks, I think there's a lot within them that, that definitely see that the system needs to change and that think that they, that it can be changed from within. Now, of course, there are those who sort of, as your question alludes to, think, you know, this system has certain red lines and those red lines are not going to allow that to be crossed. So can we even think about real reform in this way or not? And that's, I think, something that's that's up for debate and has been up for debate for quite some time in Iran. Part of what I wanted to do with this book, though, is that so much of our understandings of Iran post-revolution have sort of tended to focus on areas of resistance to the Islamic Republic. And I mean, I actually I actually started out in that way. I was studying the women's movement in Iran and had also been studying the student movement in Iran. But 
I read something very early on um, by Laura Nader and Laila Abulopud, um, anthropologists who were arguing that as anthropologists, we're really good about studying um, resistance movements or marginalized groups because those are, tend to be the communities that we sympathize with. But in doing so, we don't know what the forces are that they're actually running up against um, because we don't study power. And so that was that was actually the initial kick to get me to study systems of power in Iran, as opposed to, um, you know, communities that are uh, organizing against this power. Um, And so for me, it became really important throughout this entire project that as much as I disagreed with lots of what I heard throughout my research, when it came to writing, I really wanted to write this book in such a way that my critiques would be in there and my analysis would be in there, but that the reader would also get a sense of the logic by which the men within the Revolutionary Guard and Basij paramilitary organizations in Iran understand their lives and see the world and see the country. Because until we do that, it's really difficult then to understand how how anything begins to shift within um, any system, but especially that system. Um, and so, you know, going back to your question, is it a contradiction? Uh, potentially. Uh, but I think that that's something that that both within the Islamic Republic, they're having very heated debates about. And I know, especially since the most recent protests that happened in Iran, there's now a very large sense uh, going around the country that, you know, maybe the era of reforms is completely over now. And now there needs to be a different form of resistance to the state. Um, so that that's sort of a question um that we have to wait to see what the answer will be. Yes, speaking of the resistance movement right now, um, if you don't mind, I would um, really like to hear your opinion because you have, um, what are your insights about the current situation? What do you think will be the further reactions by the regime? Um, How will they cope with that? Yeah, so, um, so, you know, so a couple of weeks ago, in for those who may not know, the in Iran, they, um, they raised the, the fuel, fuel prices um, quite drastically overnight. And that um, sparked a series of nationwide protests in the country in which fairly quickly, actually, the, the, the regime um, clamped down on very violently and then uh, shut the internet off for some time so that it was very difficult to get news from what was going on. And now that the internet is back on and news is slowly trickling out, um, Amnesty, I think, has put the number of dead at around 200, but internal sources um, more closely aligned to the reformists have put the number of dead closer to 300 and some 300 plus people within a week, which is very, it's, it's a very high number. And it's also the, the deadliest clamp down in um, the Islamic Republic's history. So what does all of this mean now? Um, part of, okay. So how, how, in this in this atmosphere, it's very difficult to get um, exact news so far. But what I think I've been trying to understand this from from the research that I did, as well as continuing to stay in touch with folks that I did research with over these past few weeks. And part of I think how we have to understand this is that um, there's a lot of frustration on the ground against the Islamic Republic and the ways that they have been um, administering the economy as well as sort of general politics in the within the within the nation right so there's a lot of a very um, uh, valid pent-up frustration and anger against the system that produces some of this lashing out that the protesters have Uh, you know, in in the protests itself and sort of coming out onto the streets. Now, from the reaction of the state, I think there's a couple of things that are important to understand. One is that in this atmosphere of Trump, the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign against Iran, which it's not just sanctions, it's also covert operations, cyber warfare, um, a very, very large media disinformation campaign that's being um, sort of Uh, targeted at Iran and Iranians on social media and satellite television and the like. So all of this happening together has made it so that the Islamic Republic feels that it is in a state of war. 
um, vis-a-vis the United States. Now, in this state of war and having people like John Bolton, who used to be uh, the head of the National Security Council under Trump, as well as people like Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of um, State, these are folks who have sort of not shied away from making it known that they want the Iranian regime gone. So in this environment in which there is, uh, you know, so first of all, the the Trump administration pulls out of the Iran deal when Iran was complying by it, puts on some of the heaviest sanctions uh, in in U.S. history against a country, and then also has people at the helm of power who want regime change in Iran. The Islamic Republic sees this as an existential threat. So when folks start to protest like they did a few weeks ago, Um, they see this as a part of this sort of larger terrain on which this entire battle is being fought. And so because of that, they began to clamp down. Now, I think what's really important here, this is not to excuse what they did, what they did. And I think they're beginning to realize that what they did is that they went way too far and they're trying to figure out ways to backpedal this now. But I think in, in understanding what's happened today, sort of placing it back within the book, what's important is that those who began to clamp down and who have begun to try to at least gain power within the Revolutionary Guard in Iran today are those folks who are from the much more hardline factions of the Revolutionary Guard. Um, and importantly, they're the ones who saw Uh, battle in Syria and Iraq fighting ISIS. So you now have a group of people within the Revolutionary Guard who, those who were sort of moderates and reformists and who were uh, vying for the Iran deal or the JCPOA to continue were those who were trying to say, look, let's engage with the West, right? Let's put aside this sort of uh, thought that we always have to, that the West is always against us. Now, when Trump pulls out of the Iran deal, the hardliners come out and say, look, we told you you could never trust America. And we told you you could never. And then when the Europeans failed to do anything over and over again, they kept saying, look, we told you that that the Europe, the Europe is always going to side with the U.S. Anyways, none of these countries are going to come and help us even uh, under these unfair sanctions. In that environment, those folks have started to gain much more power in Iran. And so once this uh, the protests began to happen, they're the ones who... Um, uh, the way that they see, the way that this faction of the Revolutionary Guard sees politics is purely through force, period. They, they're, they're, there really isn't much more nuance to the way that they understand politics. What they understand of politics is war. And because they've, they've experienced um, not only the Iran-Iraq war, those who are from that generation, but then also more recently, the fights against ISIS in Syria and in Iraq. And so what they see is a much larger geopolitical war that is about um, weakening Iran from their perspective, right? Uh, Vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia, Israel, and ultimately the United States. So in this political environment, when they see um, folks coming out and there have been uh, reports that some of them also had weapons, then the way that they begin to respond is the way that they had been trained to respond in a place like Syria or Iraq, which is complete um, a warlike situation. Uh, Now that once the internet has come back on, what's ended up happening is that for the first time, the green movement was a movement which mostly tended to be from middle-class backgrounds, also national movement, like not nationwide, but mostly working class backgrounds. The, the protests of this recent protest, as well as ones that happened about a year and a half ago, were mostly um, working class background. Now, the Internet shutdown then involved the middle classes and upper middle classes, too, because, you know, the, the thought among them became, uh, can the state do this again one day? And, and, and we can't allow this to happen. So for the first time in a very long time, you're beginning to have solidarity build between the working classes and the middle and upper middle classes. And that's very significant. Um, so because of that, the Islamic Republic feels that it really went too far. Uh, because again, I think one thing that's really important for listeners to remember is that the Islamic Republic is a state that came about through a popular revolution. And the people in power today, most of them remember what that popular revolution was like and how quickly things changed. And so for them, what they are now starting to realize is, are they creating the the, um, 
the framework by which it would cause all of these uh, uh, different forms of solidarity networks to build against this state. Um, and that's why it was so important when uh, Mir Hossein Musabi, who was the um, the man who uh, sort of was at the helm of the Green Movement in 2009, he's under house arrest, but he put out a statement uh, a couple of weeks ago against the Supreme Leader, basically saying that he acted like the Shah and killing people. Um, and so it remains to be seen uh, what will happen from here on out. But I do think we are now entering a different era within the Islamic Republic, both as far as how the state is going to be reacting as far and and as far as how uh, protesters will now uh, uh, need to engage with the state in order to um, or or engage against the state, so I think we're going to see new new formations of politics sort of um, uh, happening in these next coming weeks to months, and it's really unknown what will ultimately happen uh, because it's it's very much developing. Okay, um, I have one last question. You have just published this brilliant book. What are your next plans? Are you working on anything specific right now? What's coming up? Yeah, so I'm working on two things, actually. Um, one is that the work that I have been doing on survivors of chemical warfare um, prior to this book, I honestly never, I, I did a film, a short film about it, um, and but then I never wrote anything about it. And part of that was because it, this is such an emotional topic. It's really difficult to write about people who have been suffering for so long. Um, and for at least it was very difficult for me. But now I feel like I'm in a position where I can take this project on. So one, the, one of the projects I'm working on is to uh, write a book about chemical warfare use um, in the Middle East. And then the other project is actually sort of taking my experiences of um, of doing this research in Iran on the intersections of power and media and now applying that here in the U.S. So what I mean by that is there's a particular kind of framework for us understanding Iran that developed from the hostage taking in 1979 um, on American news television networks, that that framework has honestly not changed very much at all within the United States and also really influenced the way in which European journalists and writers began to write about Iran as well. So what I'm doing now is uh, doing an ethnography and a historical ethnography about um, the creation of Uh, or the framework of understanding Iran since the 1979 revolution, mostly within the United States and Western Europe. Okay, that also sounds very interesting. Um, Narges, thank you again for being on the show. That was really interesting. And um, have a great day. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Anna.